page 813 in our church Bibles. I'm just going to read a few verses. If you're wondering why we're in this text this morning, it's because we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians since um, September, October last year. A few breaks here and there, and so the reason why we're here in these verses is because this is where we're supposed to be. So just keep that in mind. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 and part of 8. Our only concern this morning is verse 7. And um, we'll explain why that is as we get along with things. Just a couple of reminders. Remember, Good Friday is 6.30 p.m. And our first service on Easter morning is at 8.30, the second at 10.30. So the first service time's changed. Just keep that in mind. And as always, if you have a question about what was said or sung or read this morning, please, after the service, I'd be delighted to try to answer that question for you. Okay, verse 4, and while you're seeing the word love, um, give yourself the difficult task of replacing your name with love as I read through this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. And may God give us understanding of it. Let's pray together, please. Father, we we do come to you now with our Bibles open before us, uh, needing to learn from you, the living God. Therefore, Father, help us to believe and to understand that when your word is truly taught, then your voice is truly heard. For that is what we need, and that alone, Father, is what we seek. So we would ask you to hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I determined fairly early on it would be very good for us as a church family to take our time through this chapter 13 on Christian love. Because love, which Paul says is the greatest gift, the love which Paul is explaining here for the honest person is a dirt-revealing mirror, making it very clear, again, to the honest person for not only a need of a Savior to rescue us from sin, of not loving the way God requires, but also we are in need of a Savior to help us begin to love the way that God requires. So I wasn't surprised at all, as with each passing week, more and more of you kept coming to me and telling me that Not only had you never heard 1 Corinthians 13 explained this way, but more so you had never realized how far off you were in in loving the way God describes here from his word. In fact, it was essentially the same comment again and again, whether it was a text, a a call, a conversation, or um, an email. And what you said was something like this. This was so convicting, I had no idea that I had so far to go in Christian love. Now, as you think through that, and and we really should, knowing that, if we're going to be honest, each of us here have failed to love consistently the way love is described here in the verses that we just read, 
we should come to grips with the fact that God has known of our failure uh, to not love this way far longer than we have. In fact, we could say it wasn't until the Word of God was correctly laid to bear on our life as it was preached, which is why preaching is so important. So it wasn't until the Word of God was laid to bear in our heart as it was preached that God by His Spirit made us aware of our failure. Therefore, in not loving the way we should, this could have very well been taking place for years and maybe for decades if you've been a Christian a long, long time. Now, and this is something the Corinthian church needed to desperately learn. In the same way they were exposed before God as the word of God on love was being laid to bear on their lives, and in the same way they were coming to grips with the fact that they were so far off from the love that Paul was describing here, which is divine love, God, knowing that all along, did not bring the hammer down and throw a fit on them. He did not break off relationship with them. He did not cease to love them in the way love is described here whatsoever. God would never do that to his son's redemptive work. So in their failure to love, what was God doing with these, with these redeemed Corinthians? Well, God was in Christ loving them. If your Bible's open, God was patient. Verse 4 with them. He was suffering long with them. Verse 5, God wasn't easily angered. He was, verse 5b, he was keeping no record of wrong. And he was, verse 7a, he was protecting them. This kind of love, the love of God does that. And loved ones, I want you to listen carefully. In the exact same way God was treating the Corinthian Christians, he wanted them to afford that same kind of love and that same kind of treatment to the other Christians in that church which, of course, was one of their problems. They were not doing that. They were judgmental to each other. They were being vicious with each other. They were taking each other to the courts and suing one another. And so, in the same way, then, for each of us here this morning, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, because you know, anyone not looking into the mirror of God's Word, which exposes our own life, could say wrongly while being able to justify it in their mind in some way, okay, you made me mad and I don't love you anymore. Goodbye. Or you're not, you, you're not what I thought you were. Or you're, not, you're no longer doing what I want you to. Or you made a mistake and that's the last time, even though love keeps no record of wrong. Right? So goodbye. I don't, I don't love you anymore. However, when we come to realize how loving God is to us, when we come to realize how patient God has been with us, knowing that we have often failed in this love and knowing that God did not cut us off from his love or he did not lessen it or he did not hold it back in any way at all, then coming to grips with that truth as the word of God is preached, we are under obligation as a child of God, as people saved by grace, as spirit-filled believers to seek forgiveness, yes. But we are under obligation to ask God for the grace to help us extend His love to us, to each other in the church. Right? Because our failure to love, whether it was for a week or for a year or for decades, our failure to love wasn't just an oops. It was a sin that sent Christ to the cross. And we need to think about such things. Now, don't you want the love that we just read? 
Don't you want it coming out of you? And don't you need the love that we just read given to you? Of course we do. Of course we do. Because one of the things that makes a chapter like this so convicting for me personally, and it does, it's been a hard road to hoe through these verses. I mean, it's difficult to go home on a Thursday and Friday night having wrestled with these verses. Nevertheless, one of the things that makes a chapter like this so convicting is that we were called out of a world which only knows about taking, which only knows about getting, which only knows about me first, and I'm always right, kind of that self-absorbed satisfaction level which begins with me and, and my needs first. We were called out of that world, but what happens is that the world that we were called out of calls us back in, and sometimes we go back in. And the things in our past which were a source of shame to us and issues from before which are frankly a disappointment to us, they reappear and they make it so apparent that not only do we need God's love this way, not only do we need, verse 4, God to be patient with us, and we don't want God to keep a record of our wrongs, but it also says that we need the Spirit of God to apply the Word of God in our lives so that we can love this way. Because the kind of love which is being described here is frankly a love by nature we know practically nothing at all. Nothing at all. We can't think this way and we can't love this way until we are converted and God by His Spirit begins to make application as His Word is taught and read and understood. So it's only as God is at work in our lives that we can ever begin to, if you would, jump into this uh, great, vast ocean of God's love. It's the only way it's going to happen. Again, we've been quoting from Leon Morris every time. We're not going to change course here. The love which is to control the Christian church is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love which proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It comes from the nature of the lover rather than any merit in the beloved. So I gave the title to these talks, Street Level Love, because this is, has to be real, right? You can't fake this love. You can fake it on a Sunday morning. That's pretty easy, right? You need the IQ of about 20 to be able to do that. But when you go home through the week and the course of your meetings with one another, this is street level love. This is where the rubber meets the road. And what, this is why it's so important. So it's missions month, and this week I came across an account of a missionary by the name of Ian Hay. And Ian was one who served in the African Inland Mission in Nigeria. And in serving there, he described a scene where he came across a leper uh, along the side of the road whose body was just horribly ravaged, eaten uh, into as a result of the disease. And in that environment, at that time, and this was a while ago, it was custom for people to light fires in the center of their small homes uh, for heat and, of course, for cooking. And, said Ian Hay, it was obvious that the man that he had saw on the side of the road had fallen into a fire. So someone with leprosy has no sensation in their limbs, and he was horribly burned, so he just put two and two together. And so as a result of this, his skin was, was just covered with sores, it was oozing, it was rotting, and Ian said you could smell this man's stench from far away. Now, he had been reading his Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. He learned that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for him so that he might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And he also read what Paul said concerning the love of Christ which compels him and the fear of the Lord which also compels him to take Jesus to places where he's needed. 
And Ian was raised in a Christian home. His family uh, was a missionary family. He professed faith as a child. He was baptized as a boy. And he was a follower of Jesus Christ. But, listen to what he said. At that moment, on the roadside in Nigeria, the love of Jesus Christ struck me. Because he asked himself this question. If I ever could, would I be willing to take the filth, the pain, the stench, and the burden of the life of this poor beggar, absorb it in my body, give him my bicycle, he was a young boy riding, give him my life, and allow him to ride down the road whole and healthy and free at the cost of my life. Said Ian Hay, I could not imagine in the best of circumstances, even if I would be able to achieve it, that I would ever attempt it. He continues, as I rode on in my bicycle, for the first time I understood the nature of God's love in Christ, which loves while seeing nothing lovable in its object. You see, this is love. This is Christ's love. He took all our filth, all our sin, and he absorbs it into his precious body. He switched lives with us. And Paul writes, that's Christian love. That is the most excellent way. Now go love just like that. Now if you're still listening and if you're thinking, surely, I'll suggest to you, it would be the height of ignorance and the height of arrogance if there's any vestige in our mind that remains that would suggest that we could reproduce this love in us by mere human power. Or we would attempt to point the finger at others and say, aha, you're doing it wrong. You're not loving the way that you should. A healthy Christian conscience demands that we approach these words in repentance. We call out to God, oh God, forgive me, oh God, help me, oh God, change me, and oh God, thank you when I get this love correct. That's the way. A life of continual repentance and a life of continual confession and a life of continual thanks to God when we get it right. That's why Paul would tell the church, don't boast. In fact, if you're going to boast about anything, boast about the things which show your weakness, which show your weakness. That's what Ian Hay did. Okay, we're going to continue now. Just three points this morning. Verse 7b, love always trust. You see it there? What is the characteristic of a Christian love working itself out in the church? It is a trusting love. Uh, other translations say, love believes all things. Moffat, he paraphrases this, love is always to believe the best. Now, this does not mean that love is gullible, but it does mean that love is always prepared to give the benefit of the doubt. It assumes, this love assumes distinctively the best. Now, you know and I know we live in a cynical age. We live in a very suspicious world. And many of us are mistrusting by nature. And we think sometimes that's some kind of self-preservation mechanism that we should have. So we believe the worst by nature. So if you come into a context like this, with all the things being said and seen and done here, and you are by nature a suspicious person, not believing the best, but believing the worst, then what we need is the Spirit of God to transform our minds and hearts in our response to this love. I was thinking about this. I think it would have been so easy in the Corinthian church with all their misuse of spiritual gifts, 
for some muddle-headed person who thinks that they have the gift of discernment, right? And they think that they can just see right through people and see right through situations. So that every time someone comes up to them and says, well, God bless you today. How are you doing? This muddle-headed person thinks, you know, they didn't really mean that. You know, I think they just actually meant something else. Love would not do that. Or, think about this, when things happen in the life of the church, whatever it happens, a new ministry is introduced, a new campaign put forth, something comes across the wire, immediately suspicion creeps in, and the worst is believed. But love, Christian love, which is the greatest gift, would never do that, because love believes the best. You see, loved ones, when we see our true motives in our own hearts, and that's frankly the only heart that we can truly know, and we see our motives are not what they should be, and then we see someone else doing something else in the life of the church, love, when it invades the heart, we look at that person and we do not become suspicious. We begin to think the best of them. We think that they are doing that thing, not with bad motives, similar to our own, but actually good motives. And actually, they're doing it better than we could. And the reason that is, is because love always believes the best. Now, some of you remember the Old Testament story of Job. In Job, you had a mere man. He was an upright, God-fearing man, NIV says, who shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters, and one wife. But then his life came to a crashing halt, and he was just in a horrible mess. His kids, his wealth, his health, all taken away. He was so bad off physically that... He could hardly be recognized. His friends go to him. They see him. And they wept for him. Seven days, seven nights, they sat with him. They didn't say a word because King James Version here, they saw how great his suffering was. Now up to then, they had got it all right. They sat down. They zipped their lip. They probably held his hand. But eventually things changed. And they had to open their mouth. Let me just give you one example. This is Eliphaz, Job chapter 4, verse 7. He finally says this. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Now, so you see what's happening here. Instead of holding his hand saying nothing to him, and praying heartfelt prayers to God, which is what love demands. They didn't believe the best, and they assumed the worst, right? And we know how this goes. Boy, Job, you really messed up. You're very evil, Job. And holy cow, judging by the way that you look and all that's happened to you, you must be uh, the greatest sinner on the face of this earth, right? That happens now, right? When people are healthy, wealthy, and wise, generally speaking, what do we think? Well, God must really like them. And when people aren't healthy, and when they're not so wealthy, and they're not doing so good, immediately suspicion creeps in. What was the problem? Well, their problem was, yeah, they were called as friends, but they didn't love them. Because love always trusts. Love always believes the best. How horrible it would be if one of us got some really bad news and then some of us said, aha, I knew it. I knew there was something wrong about them all along. There's no way they could have liked each other that much. Something was going on and finally it happened. Love 
would never do that. Christian love would never do that. And what this speaks to then is a community of mutual trust. Listen carefully. We always believe the better possibility instead of the worst possibility. We always believe. This is what love demands. We always believe that each person is doing their best as a Christian. We always believe, as best as we can know, that each person is living in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We always believe each person in the church, when they speak kind words of affection to us, we believe that they really mean it. We always believe, I don't know how this got in here. We always believe that the reason why they miss so many monthly prayer services is a perfectly good reason. Now, why is that? Because love always believes the best. Now, that's fair, right? I assumed that last week. I was looking ahead into the verses. I cheated a little bit, but it's okay. Love always assumes the best. It was the Pharisees who predisposed themselves to believe the worst of the Son of God. So when he walked this earth, everything they did, they tanked on because they hated Jesus Christ. And we can't be like them. Why can't we be like them? Because this gift of love, this divine gift, always trusts. It always believes the best of others. And may God make this increasingly so in each of our lives, beginning with us, myself. Number one, love always trusts. Number two, love always hopes. El pizzai is the Greek word there, and it's used for hope. Now, this word is not some kind of vague optimism, and this is certainly not uh, the power of positive thinking. This is, this is taking the long view in light of the goodness of God and refusing to accept failure as final. So this is the kind of love given by a friend who when we've blown it, they, they don't make us feel as if we've blown it for good. This is the kind of love who as a parent, when we see our kids' failure, we don't see their failure as final. And we keep planning for and we keep arranging for that inevitable day of success for them. And we know, because we are loving them, that that little kiddo is going to get it right. That's love. So this is the kind of love which holds on, which hopes past hopes, which anticipates and plans for God to be as good as His Word says to be. So this is a love that never gives up. This is the kind of love that God gives to His people. And you know, you read through this all through the pages of the Bible. Despite all our rebel hearts and our rebel ways, the God of the Bible says, I'm coming for you, and my grace is greater than you, and my grace is greater than your sin, and I'm not giving up on you. Peter, said Jesus, you're going to mess up royally. And people are going to read about it, Peter, for a long, long time. Sorry about that. But not to worry, Peter. I prayed for you. You're going to be fine. In fact, you little rascal, you're going to see me convert 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost as you preach me and me crucified. So only 50 days after Peter's royal mess up, he's preaching Jesus to thousands of people and thousands of people are saying yes to Jesus. You see, the love of God has this forward look. And, and the love of God doesn't fear the forward look. This is sometimes, personally, this is what s scares me about being too conservative. Because by nature, we look at the future, and it's often a real nail-biter for some of us. I mean, we know the routine, right? There's not going to be enough. Uh, they're going to mess up. They're going to let me down. I'll never get the girl. I'll never get the job. She'll never change. This is always going to be the way it is. Oh, God. 
But God doesn't do that. He looks forward. And he doesn't look at where we have been. But he looks, by his grace, where we're going to be. And don't you like that? Because some of us, we don't really like where we've been. And maybe for some of us this morning, we're ashamed of where we currently are. But God looks down on us. And this is only for his children. He looks down and he pours out his love and then he looks us square in the eye because God can do that. And with all the love in his heart, he says, I love you and you're going to be fine and I'm for you and I'm committed to you. Now you go love others the exact same way. Who can argue with that? Who of us can be mad at God for that? There's a wonderful story. It's an old story that's told of a doctor who said to his colleagues in Latin, and they were all surrounded, or they all surrounded, excuse me, this, this puddle of a man. He was left for dead. Someone brought them to the care unit. He was a victim of just wicked evil. And the doctor in Latin said, what shall we do with this worthless man? And the man that was laying there half dead to the surprise of the doctors, he, he answers the question in perfect Latin, call no man worthless. For whom Christ died. Love always hope. Love always hope. You've you've given up on somebody. You've given up on somebody. Love always hopes. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15? Why was the dad even looking for the son's return? Why would he be seeing his son far off away except that he anticipated the son would come back? Why did he do that? Because love always hopes. You know, he might have had friends. And I'm sure if you jetted this story to our current day, he probably would have had friends who said, you know, you just need to give up. He took your money. In fact, he took a lot of your money. And kids today, you know, and and it's been eight years. But what was the father's response? Okay, you know, eight years is a long time, but it's not so long, is it? And besides, it's just money. And besides, this could be the day. This could be the day that my son comes home. And those eight years would seem like eight minutes. Because my boy is home. And I love him. Loved ones, why could that be so? Because love always hopes. One of the great marks of a genuine unbeliever in our day is that they have no hope. Ephesians 2.12 Outside of Christ, men and women and young people are without God. And they are without hope. They have no hope. Why would we take advice from hopeless people? Why? Why would we take advice from hopeless people? But when God comes down into the life, He creates in the Christian this godly anticipation which is fueled by His love. Right? So let's go back to Corinth for a second. Mr. Supernatural, with all their supernatural gifts, and says, oh, you know, God told me it's okay to give up. Uh, God told me it's okay to just let them go. No cloth ears. No. The greatest gift, which is greater than prophecy, which is greater than discernment, which is greater than tongues, which is the greatest gift, says, I will not lose hope. I have no right to lose hope. So think with me. We ask ourselves, who have we given up on? Family, friendships, colleagues, people in the church? 
You have a rebellious daughter or son. You have an unbelieving wife or husband. And we've just given up. And if we have given up, when did we decide it was okay to give up? Who told us to stop? Love, the greatest gift, would not do that. Now, I'm not sure. This is more me than the Bible, but I I think we stop hoping because it's just too big of a burden on our mind. We, We can't handle it, so it's just so easy to toss the thing aside. We're tired of the physical demands, the rearranging of our life, the calls, the schedules, the routines, which love calls for. So we say, I'm done, I'm giving up. And we might try to justify it in a million different ways until God, by His grace, takes our thoughts forward to the judgment. And this is in the case of the unconverted. He takes our thoughts forward. And we see the son, the daughter, the husband, the wife, the colleague, the friend. We see those we've given up on. And we see them cast into eternal darkness. And then we say, God, help me to love them. Help me to love them and not give up on them. Listen to your Bible. This is James chapter 5, verse 20. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So, so listen carefully. We can never say it's over. We can never say there's no chance because that could be nothing more than an absence of love in our lives. Now, I want you to see, if your Bible's open, that this hope matches that last phrase in verse 7, our final point, love always perseveres. And I I want you to listen to how J.B. Phillips translates this verse. Love knows no limits to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. Now, the word there for persevere is the Greek word hypomeno, and it's actually a military term, which is defined as humble, self-sacrificing, enduring action on the battlefield. So what you should have in your mind is a picture of a soldier who, when the battle is at its most fierce, he kind of relaunches, or she kind of relaunches themselves back into the battle with renewed energy. So this word is not a feeble word. This is not a a word for like sucking air just to exist. This is a stout love. It always perseveres. Some of you who are older, you might remember this song that has the line, I can't stop loving you. I made up my mind. And see, that's the word here. This is a determination word. I have volitionally determined in my will that I'm going to keep on loving you. Right? So this is not emotional love. This is volitional. This is mine. This is in the mind before it gets to the emotions. The emotions may come and they may not come. Who cares? I can't stop loving you. I've made up my mind. So again, this is not a feeble love that that is ebb and flow with emotions and feelings. This is a consecrated commitment fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Calvary love. To the end. To the end. I read of a Christian husband this week. He went to five different Christian counselors because his marriage was in deep trouble. Four of the five um, analyzed him. They talked about his past. They talked about what happened when he was a child, the way he was raised, and and asked him, some of them did, to take a temperament analysis test. One of the five, in the course of the session, asked him this, 
Would you please repeat your marriage vows you said on your wedding day? So he kind of gave him a copy, and the man did. When the man got to the phrase, for better or worse, the counselor asked him to stop, and the man did. The counselor then asked him, which one is now in your marriage, better or worse? His answer, worse. The counselor then asked him, now what did you say before better or worse? The man said, I said I would love her for better or worse. The counselor said, okay, session is over. And the man later would maintain that the advice that he received was the one thing that turned it around for him and saved him from a potential adulterous relationship. Why is that the case? And can it be that simple? Well, it's the case because love perseveres. It always perseveres. And yes, it can be that simple because Christian love is rooted in the power of Jesus Christ. And it will always persevere. One of my favorite hymns, It's my favorite hymn because I'm such a sinner. has the line, Even though you know all my ways, God, yet your love for me endures. And when I think about such things, it makes me love you more. You know what I should do? I should add my own line and say, It makes me love you more, God, but may it make me love others more as well. It was said of Jesus, John chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In other words, Jesus said, I can't stop loving you. I made up my mind. Well, our time is just about gone. Do you see the final phrase, verse 8? Love never fails. And that's it, isn't it? Love is, in fact, the one thing that stands when everything else has fallen. So we have failed God in a million different ways. However, his love in Christ never fails. We have turned our back on God. However, his love in Christ never fails. We've sinned against God in thought and word and deed again and again. We've sinned against each other in thought and word and deed again and again and again. But his love for us in Christ never fails. We've been ashamed of Jesus, just like Peter. And we've denied him in the public square. His love in Christ never fails. (coughs) We've been the cruelest of husbands. We've been the cruelest of wives. We've been the most unruly of children. However, God's love in Christ never fails. We will die. And on that day, the last day, standing before the throne, we will, if we are Christians, will be dressed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why is that so? There's only one reason. His love in Christ never fails. (coughs) So I want you to think with me, church. West Cohasset may may be known for a whole lot of things. And West Cohasset probably, probably is known for a lot of things. But wouldn't it be the best thing if West Cohasset Chapel were known as a church who seriously, humbly, and realistically and consistently was asking the Spirit of God to write this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians into our hearts and into our minds and into our relationships? Because love is permanent, 
Love is complete. It's supreme. And it's never going to fail. Because this is the love of God. This is the love of God. I want to love this way. And I believe with all my heart that all of you here, you want to love this way too. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together. Father, we we often tell you that we love you, but love for you is expressed in honor and in obedience. Please forgive us when we've gotten this wrong. Some of us here are cynical and suspicious. We believe the worst rather than the best. Please forgive us, Father, when we get this wrong. Some of us have given up on others and we've told ourselves it's okay, but it's not. God, forgive us and help us to persevere and hope and trust and to look forward to the day when you change those who we love. And so, Father, would you, in all seriousness and sincerity, God, would you please write 1 Corinthians 13 on our hearts? For without this love, God, no matter how fantastic we may be, without this love, we are nothing. Hear our prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, and have mercy on your people this morning. Amen.